opinions expressed by this podcast are not representative of our workplaces, families, friends, enemies, pets, or other entities that may associate with us, despite our opinions. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, to episode two of the Unelectables. Kirk, we made it to episode two! Well, we're doing better than George Lucas. Ouch. Still a little bitter? No, not at all. Not at all. All right. Misa sent some sarcasm. All right. Well, I am the Enlightened Savage, Joey Oberhofner. With me, as always, Kirk Schmidt. And we are, of course, the Unelectables. Well, we're recording this episode in several segments because Kirk is actually going to be away when this podcast episode drops. Uh, Kirk, where are you headed to? Uh, heading off to Whistler for the weekend. Uh, got a son who's a ski jumper, and uh, he's got to jump somewhere. Oh, absolutely. Why doesn't, he, why doesn't he jump here? Yeah, let's not talk about that today. Okay, we're not talking about that today. Uh, with that said, we're going to dive right into it. We've got a chock-full episode for you this week. Uh, tons of news coming down the pipe. As well, uh, we're going to break down some really interesting uh, stuff in the deep dive. So we hope you're strapped in and ready to go. Pack a lunch. It's a long one. Here we go. Paying attention so you don't have to. This is Unelectable News. Speaking to a House of Commons committee in early February, Elections Canada admitted while there are some rules that prevent some impersonation of parties and candidates, there are some false statements that could be made about candidates that are not addressed currently within federal election legislation. Jody Wilson-Raybould, most recently the Minister of Veterans Affairs in the federal cabinet, resigned her position in cabinet amidst a controversy regarding the handling of the SNC-Lavalin affair while she was Justice Minister. Allegations of attempted interference in the case from the Prime Minister's office, Wilson-Raybould resisting pressure from above, and her subsequent reassignment, seen by most as a demotion, exploded across the front pages this week. Opposition parties are calling for investigations and full transparency. Wilson-Raybould has retained legal counsel to determine what details she can share publicly, and the Ethics Commissioner has begun a formal investigation. If it can be proven that there was an effort to interfere in the case, it could result in criminal charges for obstruction of justice. On February 8th, Alberta Party leader Stephen Mandel was listed on the Elections Alberta website as being ineligible to stand as a candidate until fall of 2023 due to issues with financial statement filings related to his nomination acclamation in 2018. Other candidates listed as ineligible after the 2018 nomination contests include five other successful Alberta Party candidates. The government of Saskatchewan laid out its case in the Saskatchewan Court of Appeal this week regarding their rejection of the federal carbon tax. The province, supported by the provinces of Ontario and New Brunswick, argues that the federal government's use of the Peace, Order, and Good Government Clause in the 1867 Constitution unacceptably infringes on the sovereignty of the provinces, and that the federal imposition of the tax is therefore illegal. The federal government responded that climate change is a matter of national concern and therefore falls under the aegis of the clause. The Wilberforce Project, a pro-life political organization, has claimed that nominations of pro-life candidates have been very successful so far and gives the prospect of one of the most pro-life legislatures in a long time. UCP leader Jason Kenney this week told a restaurant trade group that the second piece of legislation under a united conservative government would repeal some of the changes around holiday pay and minimum wage set by the NDP over the past four years. Kenney's proposal includes lower wages for youth and bar staff, a position supported by the Restaurants Canada trade group. The NDP was quick to respond, arguing that equal pay for equal work should be a no-brainer regardless of the age of the employee, and pointing out that two-thirds of the workers affected by the UCP proposal would be women. On behalf of real Albertans, we would like to advise you that you and your religion don't belong here in Alberta, read a letter sent to a mosque in Edmonton. On the bottom, the letter writers included an unauthorized UCP logo. The letter has since been denounced by the UCP along with other parties. 
The Alberta Legislature's Member Services Committee on Tuesday unanimously approved a new funding formula which significantly reduced the resources available to small caucuses and independent MLAs. The committee, made up entirely of NDP and United Conservative MLAs, set the threshold for official party status at four MLAs, a change that would cut the three-member Alberta Party Caucus budget by approximately 60%. Independent MLA Robin Luff commented, It does appear both the official opposition and the NDP are trying to make it harder for independent members and smaller caucuses to do their jobs. Just stand there in your wrongness and be wrong and get used to it. Okay, so as we get into the deep dives this week, the first item I wanted to talk about was one of the items that you talked about in the news, Kirk, and that was the issue with the mosque up in Edmonton. Absolutely. All right, so... What we saw is sort of a classic example of uh, a, a group of just absolute idiots trying to piggyback themselves onto a larger movement in order to get attention. Would you say that's fair to say? Yeah, effectively they're co-opting the, the UCP's brand to to try to get a message out there that's that's not particularly in line with the party. Okay. Now, do you think that there's that much political calculation going into the move? Or do you think that they actually believe that Jason Kenney and the United Conservatives are their ticket to some measure of influence and, and reforming society into the image that they would approve of? I think what we're probably seeing is individuals who feel like the UCP is probably their closest aligned party and therefore... Uh, somehow believe that, that they are acting in the best interest of the party somehow. Mm -hmm. Okay. Do, do you recall examples of this federally or, or other examples provincially where there were uh, extreme groups that decided that the party that was most likely to form government was a party that they wanted to hitch their wagon onto? Well, certainly it happens in every election where there's, there's usually groups that use their talking points and, and they also promote a party at the same time and, and effectively are, are trying to piggyback. Uh, but there's also cases where there's less extreme individuals who simply uh, are uh, hyper-partisan supporters who, who talk kind of in the name of the party without being really a, a, a proper representative of the party. Right. Okay. So, so let's talk a little bit about the, the UCP reaction to this because they came out with a statement that in part pointed the finger at uh, NDP supporters and said, in effect, uh, we don't endorse this, although uh, it's entirely plausible that somebody who supports another political party might have tried to tar us with this brush. Is that mixing the signals a little bit? Should they have come out stronger against this and just left the, uh, left the tinfoil hattery alone? Well, I, I, I don't think they should have said that about the other parties. I, I don't think that's the high road to go. At the same time, it does illustrate a really important point, which is effectively by this letter being sent from whomever it was, they forced the UCP to have to comment on it. And they potentially have moved some, some uh, individuals kind of from, from one side to another, potentially. Mm. Um, so... I guess the question is, you know, when when a party is brought in on something like this, the UCP logo was on this letter that was sent, is it the responsibility of the UCP to denounce this and denounce any time that their logo is used without authorization and, and on something that they don't believe in? Okay. And what do you think? Are they? It's a hard, hard question to answer. I mean, on one hand... You know, that's the type of thing that you definitely do not want to associate with. You want to denounce immediately. On the other hand, if that's the public expectation that it's constantly denounced, do you have time to actually run in an election? And, and so as an example, one of the things I was starting to see on Twitter were individuals saying, okay, well, the party said something, but I haven't seen a lot of individual candidates tweet about this. And to some degree, it's kind of like, so instead of going out door knocking, instead of going out to forums, things like that, uh, potentially these candidates, even if they're nowhere near the incident, have to constantly be monitoring Twitter and constantly be ready to denounce improper uses and, and bad behavior. 
I mean, this is certainly an egregious case, and I think I think there is some level of the UCP was was good to put out something immediately. At the same time, does this create a precedent that makes it really difficult to actually run an election? Because as much as they alluded to it, it could happen. Like somebody somebody unscrupulous unscrupulous could easily start doing this type of things in the name of the party they don't like to try to uh, create this attention and create this this image of this party that may not be true. Okay. Um, but taking that then one step further, if you have identified, for example, a particular weakness in your internal polling with your party, is it not at least possible, and not to venture too much into the realm of conspiracy theory here, but is it at least possible that you would maybe have a trusted operative set up a situation where you have the opportunity to come out and maybe change the channel on something that is dogging your party. I mean, we've both worked in enough back rooms to know that sometimes if you really want to get positive attention for your candidate, you have to create a negative situation for your candidate to ride in as the hero on the white horse. It's it's possible. It it's the type of thing where I don't think I don't think a lot of these things are useful for any party to be doing and I think it's the type of thing where you know the voters may punish for it and you know the public perception might change because of it but really when at the end of the day if you're running a campaign and you're pulling stuff like this can you live with yourself and unfortunately some people can mm -hmm. absolutely well I think that Jason Kenney's initial statement condemning this this letter was a really really strong statement I'm just trying to find that now but um, then when you had for example the, the former uh, president of the interim board of the party uh, Ed Amar who's a who's a UCP candidate I believe come out and he muddied the waters a little bit with this talk of conspiracies and and it's really created a situation I think where I'm not sure that the UCP now is better off than they were before this happened so if this was a case of somebody deciding that they wanted to, to give the UCP a little shot in the arm, because I think it's undeniable. I mean, you and I have followed Alberta and, and federal politics for a long, long time. And I don't think anybody in their right mind who has done that could say with even a hint of, of honesty that they think Jason Kenney is, is racist. He's the furthest thing from it, right? Jason Kenney is a lot of things, but a racist is definitely not one. Um, and to that end, right, um, you know, when he came out with his response, it was really, really strong. But then you had these people who I think were trying to be helpful, but what they did is they came out and they made things worse instead of just letting the leader speak for the party. Would it have been better off if they had just executed some, some message discipline here? Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, this, this goes for every party in every election. We see it where message discipline becomes a problem here and there and it does cause issue for the party and and you'd think that you know when when you go in to be a candidate that's kind of the the first piece but you know everybody makes mistakes even when they when they type things they're typing things out of anger they're they're typing things out of out of an emotional response and you know that it, it might be the type of thing where even they heard from somebody that this is what it was and they want to get it out there. And so, so there's a million reasons why that the extra information or the, the extra, you know, commentary came out on it. Mm -hmm. No, it's not a good thing. And it definitely muddied the waters and it definitely created a worse situation for the UCP. Uh, everybody would have been better off just simply saying, we, we do not condone this one bit. And, and come up with the strong statements and leave it at that. Right, but to your earlier point, it's unrealistic to expect all 87 of your party's candidates to suddenly jump on and issue a stinging rebuke of something that, that happens, or that's literally all they would be doing all day, right? Absolutely, and, and quite often when you see comments like that where, you know, well, where are the candidates on this? It's usually, you know, a couple hours after the incident happened. The person might not have even opened Twitter in the last 12 hours. Mm -hmm. right because you have other things to do when you're a candidate right. so you know it's it's easy enough for us to sit in an office or uh, you're sitting at home on the couch and going through twitter and going why haven't they responded yet but at the same time you know 
we also have people who constantly complain about, well, I've never had a candidate at my door. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, you're never going to get a candidate at your door if they're stuck on the Twitter machine responding to things that they're not really involved with. Absolutely. So I found Jason Kenney's statement, and, and in reading through it here, and I'm going to read it uh, out loud because I think it, it bears repeating, especially if people missed this news this week. Um, and I think it's great except for one paragraph, and I'll let you tell me which paragraph he should have left out. Here's his response. He says, Let me be perfectly clear. This hatred and bigotry has no place in our Alberta. All Albertans must be free to practice their faith in peace. To the ignorant fool who sent this letter, you'd best look at my long-standing and ongoing work in pluralistic outreach, including all races, religions, and creeds. I have no intention of changing that work. If you're willing to work hard, care about getting our province back on track for all Albertans, and support free enterprise principles, then the UCP welcomes you. If you want to spread hate and division, you have no place in this party and never will. This letter, of course, has absolutely nothing to do with the UCP. I think it's clear that there is a small group of social miscreants taking it upon themselves to do this. In fact, I wouldn't be completely surprised if the UCP logo was deliberately used in this letter in order to smear our big tent tolerant party. The UCP is the antithesis of the hateful, narrow-minded soldiers of Odin, wolves of Odin, the clan, or whatever these sad losers call themselves these days. In closing, I'd remind you of the principles of our United Party as stated in our founding document, the United Conservative Party will be guided by the following principles, the rule of law, equality of all before the law, and protection of the fundamental rights and freedoms of all, and a robust civil society made up of free individuals, strong families, and voluntary associations. So that's the statement that Jason Kenney released in, in the hours after this, this uh, letter to the mosque became public. What do you think, having heard it again here? Well, it's certainly a, a strong letter, and, and, and actually there's a lot of language in there that is not typical language you hear from a politician making this sort of statement. Mm -hmm. I mean, he effectively calls people idiots. They Miscreants is another word that he uses. I mean, that's, that's pretty strong um, in terms of, of statements that I've heard in anything like this. So, so I think it's really... It's a really well-crafted statement. The, the paragraph that you alluded to, the paragraph about uh, this might have been done on purpose, absolutely that should have been left off. Mm -hmm. um, and, and again, this, this goes to the way that you message things, right? So, so there's a way that you can say that without saying it, mm -hmm. right? And, and a stronger statement, and, and I would say a more statemently-like statement, would be something to the effect of, any person who uses any party's logo to further an agenda, you know, and, and then some sort of uh, statement about, about not doing that. But, but I, think, I think if you want to really come off as, as the elder statement, statesman here, you really want to have that statement that is about all parties and how this shouldn't happen. And, and, and it, does, it does, at that point, at least suddenly goes... If you did this because mm -hmm. you are a supporter of another party and you're trying to make us look bad, that's bad. Right. But we also don't condone it of our own party. And right. that's one thing that doesn't come across in here. Well, because one of the criticisms that people were making right or wrong about this statement with, with Kenny is that um, it almost takes the, the, the victimization and puts it on the UCP. And it's saying, well, we're the victims here. Right. Some, right. Somebody used our logo and they're, they're trying to smear our party. When, in effect, the victims here are... It's the mosque, right? Absolutely. But, I, I mean, to your point that the, um, uh, the language is really, really strong, there's one line in particular that I just love here. I, 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 I haven't seen this side of Jason Kenney before. I'd love to see it on some of the other issues because a lot of people have a lot of questions about what this party's going to do. Under, under Kenny if, if they're elected to govern. And, and this line here, um, if you want to spread hate and division, you have no place in this party and never will. You never hear a politician say something like that because what they're doing is they're saying, don't vote for me. If you think this way, I don't want or need your vote. And that is something that most good retail politicians would never say. But in taking a principled stance like this on this issue, I think Kenny makes himself look 
more like that elder statesman. I wish he hadn't then shot himself in the foot a little bit a few paragraphs later, but he sounds like an adult in the room. And in a lot of ways, that's what we've been missing in our political discourse for quite some time. I just wish we would hear it more often and from more directions. And it wouldn't take, you know, hate mail showing up at a mosque to bring out the best in us. So it was interesting uh, with Elections Canada talking to a House of Commons committee today, basically saying that um, things that are said about a candidate that is, are untrue um, aren't really... There's really no legislation that has teeth in terms of the election legislation that can do anything about that. So, of course, you know, in Canada, we've got, you know, libel laws and things like that. But in terms of if somebody starts spreading a, a rumor about a candidate um, or, or something that is an outright lie, um, from an election standpoint, there's nothing that Elections Canada can really do. What they can do is if you impersonate a candidate or a party... There are some things that can be done in those cases. There are some false statements that if you use them to try to alter an election, especially in terms of things like uh, you say that somebody, you know, um, committed a crime, something like that. There, there is some legislation around that, but just in general, in, in terms of, you know, social media and things like that, if, if I say that, you know, you kick puppies... Um, there's not a lot that exists from an Elections Canada standpoint to to enforce anything. Okay. So do Elections Canada rules and, and the laws surrounding our elections, do they apply just to people within Canada or do they apply internationally? And what I mean by that is, is there anything stopping somebody from Montana or somebody from Rio de Janeiro or somebody in Vladivostok from saying something that is patently untrue, uh, going the full fake news route, not fake news, meaning just news I disagree with, but genuine fake news. If somebody puts out that article saying Joey kicks puppies and it's got, you know, the whole, all the bells and whistles, it looks like a legit article, gets shared a thousand times and it costs me the election. If they're not in Canada, do I have any recourse? That's a good question. I actually don't know the answer to that. Uh, when I when I was more in tune with the federal election legislation, I do remember there being a provision about not being able to have foreign entities involved in the election. Mm -hmm. But if I remember correctly, that was really about uh, things like advertisers and, and things like that. So so some random person, um, you know, coming from from the states who who simply comments on this, I'm not sure that there are any any pieces about that and and even even in Canada there's not much mm -hmm. and the other thing to remember is this is only about federal elections as well like elections Canada has no purview over provincial elections municipal right. elections right so this is this is also only the federal arena but but effectively there's very little recourse okay so looking forward then I mean we're recording this in February of 2019 we know we have a federal election coming up this fall. By all indications, it's going to be absolutely brutal if the kind of stuff that we've been hearing and seeing lately is any indication. With that being the case, do we have any reasonable expectation of civility in this election? Or is it just going to be a case of who can motivate more half-truths and innuendo? That's a good question, and, and to be perfectly honest, I don't see civility coming our way. Mm -hmm. um, maybe I'll be pleasantly surprised, uh, but it's the type of thing where over, over the last few years with social media, uh, certainly there has been, um, I, won't say, I won't say a data-driven uh, report of, of necessarily heightened hostilities, but certainly in terms of what I've seen and what others have, have commented on, that anecdotal evidence, it seems like social media is getting worse. Mm -hmm. And the ability of foreign agents to be involved in elections is more and more a real possibility. I mean, even even a couple of weeks ago, there was discussion about concern with uh, Russians actually meddling in, in Canadian elections. Mm -hmm. So certainly there's concern about it. And I think, I think this is kind of all part of that piece is how do we prevent uh, some of what happened in the United States from happening here and and I think what Elections Canada is saying is we don't know we you know and and to some degree you also don't want to build legislation that says Elections Canada can punish a candidate for um, a lie 
about another candidate, right? Mm-hmm. Like that brings us back to the whole situation about about sending letters with party logos, you know, that that don't represent the party. So so there's a lot of things going on, but I think I think civility is going to be going out the window okay. from a social media perspective. Well, even putting aside the international troll factories for a second. I mean, just in the news very recently, we've got this issue with SNC-Lavalin, right? And the uh, former federal justice minister is alleged to have been pressured by the prime minister's office. Now, all of a sudden, we've got infographics coming out from as high up as the leader of the opposition, Andrew Scheer, saying, uh, essentially, in not so many words, and sometimes in so many words, the prime minister's a crook. We need an investigation immediately. This guy is dishonest. This guy is interfering in an investigation. He may be a criminal. I mean, Elections Canada is saying there's nothing we can do about that? Effectively. I mean, I mean, there's some... That, of course, is speculation, and, and it's based on some, some information that has come out in the public. So I think, I think that's even a little bit easier to, to let go, even though, you know, from a... From a Citizen standpoint, I don't think it's it's as far as we should be going. I, but but there is something to be said about needing ethics reviews. And so again, this comes down to language, right? We talked about it with with what Jason Kenney said. Um, language plays such an important part in in everything we do in politics. So if you're saying, you know, this person might be a criminal, that's a very different conversation than you know this requires a fundamental ethics review to get to the bottom of it, right? And and so. So what would have been the discourse maybe 20 years ago in terms of this needs to go to ethics review and, and you get your typical question period type, you know, alleging questions. Um, it seems to have, have rolled out into the social media street and seems to be basically a, just a brawl now. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, I mean, right, I'm, I'm looking at Andrew Shear's Twitter right now, right? And, I mean, it's just, it's packed with, with these allegations and, you know, Justin Trudeau has to come and testify and, you know, like, I'm just, I'm looking at this and I'm going, why on earth? I mean, irrespective of whether or not you support Justin Trudeau, and I know a lot of our listeners do and a lot of our listeners don't, um, or support the liberals at all, the reality is that I mean, you look at this as somebody who might want to get involved in politics and you think, okay, if my only recourse coming out of an election, a a damaging, bruising election as a candidate, may be to seek some sort of civil remedy in terms of of libel, but it'll be long after the election and I will have blown my entire retirement fund getting my butt kicked because somebody started a rumor that was demonstrably untrue – and I might be able to get some money back after the fact, but I still didn't get that, you know, member of parliament seat. Why would somebody get involved? Or does this just create a situation where only people who can afford to have lawyers on retainer are going to be thinking of running for office? I, and I think that's, that's the danger. And, and there's been a danger for a while in terms of social media and its use and, and candidates' lives being ripped apart. But I think that's been an issue already. And, you know, it's interesting, and I don't think it's worth discussing today, but, but in terms of what we pay our politicians, there's a lot of pressure always to reduce that and for politicians to not take pay raises and, and things like that. But it does beg a question at some point of if there's no incentive to run against this mounting wall of social media crap, then why would you run? So, so that that does preclude an everyday person who has a normal life who you know may might have made a few mistakes in college uh, from running because it's all going to be ripped up it's all going to be brought up and and dealt with mm-hmm. and why would you want to deal with that well and and the advent of social media has created this this perfect storm that's coming down the pipe too because i mean i mean you've heard this time and time again listeners on, on other podcasts and read about it in articles talking about how, um, you know, it used to be that news and opinion had a gateway. 
before they could get out to the public, an editor would need to look and read it and go, you know what, we can't run that. That's too inflammatory. That's not based on fact. And now that filter, that, that membrane, is gone. And anybody with an opinion, including if they just want to start a political podcast, but who would do something like that, um, they can just spew it out and it can be uh, mainlined directly to the audience. And there's no... Uh, there's nothing stopping fake news or or hate speech or anything else from getting out there. Now, I mean, the next generation of politicians is absolutely screwed. I mean, I'm 40 years old. Kirk, you're what, like 22? <laughs> 36. You're 36. Okay. So, so we are both sort of in that exennial, early millennial, uh, you know, age cohort. But as we look at, for example... The kids who are 20 now, who have never known life without a smartphone that they can recall, uh, who have been Instagramming and tweeting and and uh, Facebooking their lives and probably 10 other apps I don't know about that my niece will remind me of after she hears the podcast. But those people, when they run for office in 10, 20, 30 years, their entire life and every bad decision they've ever made is public because you know better than anybody it, uh, once it's on the internet it's on the internet you can't get it off absolutely no no it's it's hard to predict what the future is going to hold um, but on the other hand that might be what protects that cohort the the fact that everybody's lives are online everybody has public mistakes and there might be a, a level of so what, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, right now the big the biggest things that come out are not usually about when when people were in college, mm -hmm. although certainly certainly that has happened. You know, you know when you find out that, that uh, a justice really likes beer, mm -hmm. there there is something to be said about about some of those college things that have that have been brought up, but usually the stuff that's coming out right now. Um, where people are attacking candidates is is usually more uh, recent history, right? And I think th I think the same thing is going to be true with that younger cohort. I think when they make mistakes that are more recent history, um, they're going to be much more public. And you know that that picture of them, you know, wearing wearing very little at some part, some kegger, um, you know, guzzling beer while they're underage. There's going to be a level of you know kids were kids. And that that's just part of, you know, part of high school, part of yeah. college, whatever. So do you think societally we're gonna we're gonna draw a line somewhere and we're gonna say, look, if it if it happened before you were twenty three, then it doesn't count. Or are we gonna establish some sort of scale like everybody gets a, a four dick pick curve, right? Where you know if if you've done something before the age of twenty five and it only happened a few times, you're okay. Like where do we draw that line? Because even now we see with with the, the current batch of Gen X politicians, right? People keep going back to, for example, uh, Jason Kenney's statements when he was in university in San Francisco, right? Now, when you're in university, you're an adult, sort of, right? But you're also still very much adolescent in a lot of important ways, including sometimes your judgment. So when we look at somebody who made a statement uh, when they were a university student at age 22 or 23, do we hold that as important as a statement they made when they were in their 40s? Or do we categorize that in the same uh, same sort of nebulous area that we do, that picture of that guy wearing a dress at a kegger? Like, hey, you were 22 or 23. We're, we're okay with it. But then again, we're electing people at 25 and 26 now. I think it's going to come down to the severity. I, I think that's that's where it will go. So it's the type of thing where if you're in college and you sexually assault somebody, absolutely, doesn't matter that you were in college, you need to take responsibility for your actions. And, and on the other hand, you know, you, 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 know you, you wear some goofy costumes and maybe make some, some dumb statements. That might be seen as, as less egregious, but it'll be hard to say. Um, but in the end, in this interim period, we're, we've got an entire generation of, of people who who are, are reticent to run. And you and I both know individuals who 
we have encouraged to run because they would be incredible at their job as a legislator and they will not run because of what it means for, you know, just in terms of their lives being upended, what it could mean for their family, things like that. Mm -hmm. So, so there's an entire group of, of solid people who will not run because of what social media has, has created in terms of the political storm. And then we basically have to wait until we get the younger politicians who are kind of insular from, from that idea because they've lived their lives online and, you know, yeah, you're right. I did tweet that at one point and I don't think that anymore. Right. Because, I mean, that's the other thing is people mining past tweets and past Facebook posts to find uh, dirt on you. Now, I know as somebody who employs people myself, I have gone through people's social media footprint to see if they'd be a good ambassador for, for my organization. But, um, you know, we, we see all the time now people going back and finding something from 10 years ago, a, a single individual tweet, and and suddenly it's cost them a million-dollar job. I mean, the James Gunn situation. Well, that's exactly what I was thinking when you were talking about that. Yeah, right. I mean, he made a, a very bad off-color joke, but... He made it, and it cost him, I don't know how much he was going to make for, for Guardians 3, but uh, he's out now. you know. And, and so I'm not saying that that's the wrong choice for Disney to have made. It was their choice, and they made it. But um, you know, we look at this next batch of politicians, and we think, well, I mean, it, the, the trends in terms of what is and is not acceptable from a potential uh, elected official always boil down to the people who show up to vote. And when we think of the kids who are 20 now, the people who always are going to show up to vote by the time these these young people are, are running for office, it's going to be our age cohort. So in a lot of ways, we're going to set the bar for what we will and won't tolerate in an elected official as much as they will. Because when they're running for office, they'll be in their 30s. Do people in their 30s vote? Eh, some, but not nearly as many as who are in their 50s. Right. So, I mean, we have to ask ourselves, as sort of the last generation that grew up with dial-up internet, um, what are we willing to, to tolerate and look past when we walk into a ballot box? Okay, so let's talk about the 2019 Alberta provincial election for a few minutes. Now, we're setting up nicely to have a, a nice big election here at some point in the spring because we have a fixed election period instead of a fixed election date, which has always bugged me ever since it was brought in. Uh, but notwithstanding that, uh, we do have an election coming up. And we have a number of parties that are uh, new or new-ish on the scene that are looking to make a big splash. I mean, obviously, the United Conservative Party, as much as we like to say, well, they are not really a lot of new faces. Um, but they are a lot of new faces, and more importantly, as a party, they've existed for, what, barely a year and a half, two years now? Yeah, it, it hasn't been long, for sure. So they're, they're one of the newest kids on the block. Right. Um, even though they are made up of two of the strongest parties in previous elections. Right, right. The, the legacy parties, the Alberta PCs and the Wild Rose. Correct. Okay. So uh, another party that's trying to make a splash is the Alberta Party. Now, they've gone to great lengths to point out that they are going to be running a full slate of 87 candidates in this election. Um, or are they, Kirk? Well, of course, with with this this nomination paper issue that, that came out um, at time of recording, uh, this, this is something that could prevent some candidates. Now, now, that doesn't mean that they won't be running a full slate. Right, they could it, always replace these candidates. Absolutely. It's just that there, there are now... Uh, there's now belief from Elections Alberta side that uh, they are ineligible due to filing deadlines and due to the rules around that. Um, and of course, the Alberta Party is going to challenge that where possible. But but I think they're still going to try to plan, try to run a full slate. It's just a matter okay. of if it's those. Okay. So l looking at our friend Dave Verda's blog, hi Dave, um, we see uh, he he's keeping a, a very very specific and detailed list of the nominated candidates in the provincial election. If you haven't been there, go there. It's daveberta.ca backslash alberta-election. 
and that's where he's got all the information on who's running for a nomination, who's won a nomination, and, and information on those particular candidates. Now, I don't believe that Dave's blog has taken into account the people who were disqualified, because that's now an issue before the courts. But as of the recording of this, which is February the 8th, um, we've got the United Conservative Party in a prohibitive lead with 79 candidates nominated out of the 87 constituencies. Next is the Alberta Party, which is listed at 63. Next is the governing New Democrats at 53. Are you surprised to see them having nominated so few candidates at this stage in the game? No, and if you'll remember, the, the PCs uh, often went through very late nomination periods going close to an election. Mm -hmm. um, it, it happened... Uh, with quite a few ridings in, in previous elections where um, there was no point kind of going through a nomination period until close to the end. Uh, that can be dangerous for, for a number of reasons, mm -hmm. but, but it's not unprecedented. Well, it happened in my riding when I ran for a nomination in Calgary Fish Creek, you'll recall. We were ready to go a full year before the nomination was actually allowed to go forward by the party. And we were running against an incumbent in the in the area so i mean we we said well look we need to get this nomination done so we can have a candidate who can then go out and knock on all these doors and the party said well we'll we'll get to you we'll get to you and then they got to us about a month and a half before the writ dropped at which point there was no way anybody could have i mean ralph klein's ghost couldn't have won an election in a month and a half right so um it, it's interesting to see the new democrats sort of pulling out a lot of the old tricks from the pc playbook um, the next party, uh, in terms of nominations, is way down the list, and this is kind of surprising to me because it's one of the best established parties in the entirety of, of the Commonwealth, and it's the Liberal Party, right? The Liberal Party of Canada, but the Liberal Party of Alberta, too, has been around now for 114 years, right? They were the founding government of this province. And then once they were kicked out, they have never had a sniff at government. The closest they ever came was with Lawrence DeCore as leader, right? And uh, back in the uh, early 90s. And they've nominated 17 candidates. Now, 17 candidates out of 87 ridings. Has the success of the New Democrats hobbled the Liberal Party in their attempt to, to claw back and gain some relevance again? Well, I think I think you're you're really asking if the Liberal Party has ever clawed back. I mean, you you talk about decor. Um, you know, since then the Liberal Party has it has had a lot of issues attracting candidates, mm -hmm. um, attracting uh, enough candidates to have nomination battles. Um, there have been quite a few that have been acclaimed over the years, uh, simply because that that's the candidate. That's mm -hmm. that's the only person. So I don't think this is anything new. Um, with with the NDP and the Alberta Party existing, one would have to question what does the Alberta Liberal Party offer that is different. Mm -hmm. And then I think I think we also have to look at some some recent issues with with some people who were part of the Alberta Liberal Party, like Ken Hare, mm -hmm. where allegations came up, um, and 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 so you already have a party that is uh, is struggling to survive and then you get issues like those and and effectively you know what's left for the party right i mean it's it's a tough road to hoe to be a liberal in alberta at the best of times a, a capital l liberal now to be a liberal in alberta when the leader of the uh, liberal party of canada has the surname trudeau that's got to be 10 times harder well absolutely okay so moving on down the list now, the next uh, largest uh, party, at least in terms of nominations, is the Green Party of Alberta. Now, um, the Green Party has 10 candidates listed. Um, going a little further down the list, uh, the Freedom Conservative Party, Derek Fildebrandt's group, has five candidates uh, nominated at this point. And then th this is an interesting addition to the list, the Alberta Advantage Party. Now, this is the, the party that Marilyn Burns set up. Uh, for uh, wild rosers who were discontented with the way that the whole merger went down. And they've got three candidates so far. So they're between they and the Freedom Conservatives, uh, they're still not quite as big as the Green Party in terms of nominated candidates. 
But do you think that the Freedom Conservatives and the Alberta Advantage Party are going to be enough of a draw, even in individual ridings like Strathmore, where Fildebrandt is running, uh, to, to siphon votes away from the uh, juggernaut that is the UCP? Or are those ridings where they're nominated in basically foregone conclusions already? Well, I think it's going to depend on what happens during the election, right? Mm -hmm. So so if you'll remember, I mean, when, when we had um, the, the Wild Rose and the PCs as the main two parties going after each other quite a few years ago, um, and it looked like actually the Wild Rose might take it under Danielle Smith, um, there, weren't, there weren't a lot of, you know, like always, there's a lot of little fringe parties here and there, but, but there weren't any that had... Um, say established names like Derek Fildebrandt, mm -hmm. uh, really running running the show in terms of of the right. So when the Huntsberger issue came out, when when the Leach comments came out, um, those are the Lake of Fire comments. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and so when they came out, you know that basically what happened is Wild Rose voters didn't go to the polls. Mm -hmm. I mean that's at least what what we were seeing. Uh, when I when I was crunching the numbers on on my side, so they didn't come out. Now, if there are other parties that are viable conservative options, um, and you know Derek Fildebrandt, having been an MLA, um, is you know quite well known. There's something to be said of if the UCP start having bozo eruptions, mm -hmm. and and starts withering away at the party, then then yeah, I think I think there is enough there in those parties to siphon away. If if the UCP come in very strong and come in as an alternative to the NDP and can do so in a relatively clean election with clean messaging, I don't think you're gonna see a lot of votes go to those other conservative parties mm -hmm. because there will be a general populist consensus of getting rid of the NDP, at least in terms of the conservative voter. Right. Now, I think that we can reasonably expect that we're going to have full slates or very close to full slates pending, you know, last minute withdrawals and that sort of thing for the UCP, the NDP, and if if we believe uh, the Alberta party. So every voter in the province is going to have at least those three options on their ballot, if not more. Now, it's one thing to be on the ballot. It's another thing to have a legitimate shot at it. And in order, you mentioned messaging. In order to get your messaging out, of course, it requires organization. It requires discipline. But perhaps more than anything else, it requires money. Now, what are we talking about when we talk about the fundraising numbers for these parties? Because it costs money to run an election, but there are now new rules that will be tested for the first time in the 2019 election that were not in place in 2015, the last time Albertans went to the polls. So it's possible, do some of these parties have too much money? What do the numbers say? Well, so if, if we look at the pure fundraising numbers for 2018, so this is the Q4 financials for every, or the, the, the three major, effectively, when, and when I say that I mean UCP, NDP, and and the Alberta party because mm -hmm. they're they're the three most likely to have full slates on right. on election day. Uh, the UCP last year raised six point seven million dollars, six point six six actually. Mm -hmm. um, we won't go into to meaning of well, that. what's what's forty thousand between friends, exactly. right? Um, so so they definitely had the largest chunk of money. The second would be the NDP. They also raised several million. They raised three point four million. So. As much as they are two-thirds of what the UCP has raised, the NDP, who, who you know, if you believe kind of um, what you're hearing in, in political circles, uh, where, you know, people hate the UCP now, or, or sorry, they, they hate the NDP now, and then, you know, they want them out and all of that, they've raised a lot of money in in the last year as well. So, so there's something to be said about the power of that party still, that people are still giving money to them in 2018. And then the Alberta party has has just under six hundred thousand dollars, or that's what they raised in twenty eighteen. Mm -hmm. Now, if you look at their quarterly breakdown, I mean they they started out actually quite quite small in Q one, and it definitely improved over the year. Right now, Q one of twenty eighteen was the time of their leadership race. That's right. Okay, 
So after the selection of Stephen Mandel, we saw an uptick in, in donations. Yeah, I mean, I mean, if, if you want to, if you want to look at, at kind of what happened, uh, quarter one was eighty thousand. Quarter two was one hundred and twenty-five thousand. Quarter three was the smallest quarter that was that was twenty-nine. But you also have to remember we're talking about calendar quarters here. Mm-hmm. So of course, there's a, a whole lot of summer in there. Right. And any fundraiser will tell you the summer is pretty much useless for for a lot of fundraising. Right. Um, and then and then. Quarter four, which is always the, the strongest in, in any type of fundraising, uh, that was three hundred and sixty thousand. So, okay. so they raised you know a third of a million dollars the last quarter in twenty eighteen as they're starting to ramp up. Which for the Alberta party is really good. Absolutely right. Now compared to the other two parties, though, is that enough to hang? I mean, the the limit under the new legislation is two million dollars as a party for central party expenses related to an election. So running the advertisements on TV with your leader, that sort of thing. But then you have the individual constituency associations that need to spend money to get their people elected too. So how much money does a party need going into an election? Or how much, I guess, what's the maximum they could possibly spend? Well, well, here's here's the thing. So if we talk about the Alberta party, you know, obviously the NDP and the UCP have money in their war chest. They're mm-hmm. ready to go. Um, from an Alberta party standpoint, I don't, I didn't look deep enough into the financials to know what they already had prior to 2018, but certainly if we looked at just what they raised in 2018, and we use that as, as kind of a uh, what their war chest is, uh, $600,000, assuming they don't have any central budget, you know, you divide that over 90 ridings, and you're basically talking about $7,000 each, mm-hmm. right? So is that enough to run an election, or is that an, enough to run a campaign? To put it in perspective, when I ran my cam- campaign in twenty uh, or two thousand eight, um, it was a federal riding, so it's a much larger riding. Mm-hmm. Um, but we spent fifteen thousand dollars, and that fifteen thousand basically paid for signs. It paid for two mail drops, and and then you know, office expenses, and and not even actually having a rented office space, but but just you know, telephone lines and and internet and things like that. So. So if I was spending $15,000 11 years ago mm-hmm. on a campaign, I have a hard time believing that 7000 per riding would be enough. Now, again, this is only 2018, so of course there's going to be the first quarter of 2019. Mm-hmm. If there's anything that happened prior to 2018, any war chest that they've set up. Um, and of course, the moment the writ drops, you know, there's there's always more, more fundraising that happens there too. Right. Uh, that is another one of the candidate responsibilities, is really to raise money. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's not saying that that's all the money they have, but certainly if, if you looked at it, you know, kind of insular, um, there's certainly not enough there in the 2018 numbers. Now, there's also the fact that a rising tide lifts all ships, right? I mean, I know that there were some successful NDP candidates in Calgary in 2015 who spent less than $5,000 on their local campaign, right? All that they needed to do for that election was be New Democrats in Rachel Notley's NDP, and they got elected MLA. And they were as surprised as anybody the day after when the votes were finished being counted, right? Um, the votes would be much faster if they were just, uh, if we just did online voting, but we'll talk about that later. So we've, we've got the situation where as much as we'd like to think, and you and I would both love to think that the local candidate matters a ton, in reality, if the central campaign goes well, as we saw with the NDP in 2015, and if your main competition, as we saw with the PCs in 2015, absolutely crap the bed with their central campaign, or like we saw with Hillary Clinton down in the States just a couple of years ago, it is very possible to be outspent significantly and still win. But do we see that happening? I mean, it, it, the election hasn't even been called yet. The writ hasn't been dropped. But within the next three months or so, we should have new MLAs in, in the Legislative Assembly. And three months is an eternity in politics. But do you see a rising tide for the Alberta Party? Oh, absolutely could happen. I mean, the, the thing is, the Alberta Party, you know, we talked at, really at the beginning of this segment about new parties. They're not new, mm-hmm. right? Um, there have been actually several leaders that we have gone through with the Alberta Party, um, and they were founded as a right, as a well, not far, far right, but they were founded as a right wing party. 
uh, way, way back in the day. And the, the Reboot Alberta folks kind of came in and, and, and swept out the... Uh, uh, swept out the basement and sort of refret, put a new coat of paint on it and, and made it something new. And that was just in the last 10 years or so. Yeah, so so they're, they're certainly not new to the scene. Um, they've, they've certainly done some incredible homework in their years in the legislature, especially under Greg Clark. I mean, there was, there was a lot of uh, responses to government pieces, even though they had one MLA for a while. Mm-hmm. There were some very sophisticated responses to government as as an opposition party so so they have that going for them they have you know the strength of, of over the years kind of becoming more and more ingrained within within the Alberta culture um, whether or not they're just always seen as, as kind of a side party as, as kind of the Greens seem to have been mm-hmm. in, in Canadian political culture um, that remains to be said that said I, I just pulled up the 2014 financials for the New Democrats okay um, and and it turns out that the amount that they fundraised in the year prior to their landmark election was seven hundred and thirty three thousand dollars, and that was when union donations were still legal. That's right. So so the thing is that I mean the Alberta Party is not coming in in a much different state than the NDP were in terms of um, coming into a full slate, uh, maybe maybe not fully vetted candidates or maybe candidates who who um, who you know are, are claimed or, or whatever in, in certain ridings. Um, they're coming in with a war chest that actually has some money but not really going up against what would have been the PC juggernaut of, of Jim Prentice's war chest mm-hmm. at the time. So I wouldn't call the Alberta Party out at, at any point right now. Mm-hmm. What I would say is that the Alberta Party has a major uphill battle, mm-hmm. but then again, I mean, look at look at the last few elections that have happened in Alberta and, and some of the things that have happened. I mean, we saw the NDP elected in 2015. We saw Nahid Menchi elected in 2010 as as effectively, you know, well, when the first survey came came out, he was he was like the 15th candidate mm-hmm. and and slowly rose up the ranks. So there's nothing to say that the Alberta Party won't do that. Uh, but what they need to do now is they need to show strength and they need to show what they know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And that's where this filing issue, even if it gets resolved, is going to work against them already. Right. Okay, so now looking at um, uh, looking at the polling, right, which is not a projection, right? We talked about this in our last episode. This is not reflective of what will be in the future. It's just reflective of what was at the time that they were making these phone calls. But the the latest poll, at least that I'm looking at, it's a Main Street research poll, um, and it indicated that the UCP had the support of 52.3% of decided voters. The NDP was second with 27.8%, and this is province-wide. This isn't broken down by region. I could do that, but it's too detailed for the purposes of this discussion. Alberta Party was third with 7.7%, and the Liberals were fourth with 6.1%. Now, despite the fact that the Alberta Party has been nominating people like crazy and fundraising better than they ever have, um, they're still just, you know, within the margin of error above the Liberal Party, which has been almost a non-factor now for at least five years, if not longer. Um, I mean... Looking at that optimistically, you say there's a ton of growth potential there, but do they have enough time to climb up that far? I mean, I know that the NDP were not at 7.7% this close to the last election, and they certainly made up a lot of ground with a combination of a vibrant, charismatic leader um, and uh, you know a main opposition uh, in the governing party at the time that was just crap in the bed with their central campaign and a secondary opposition in the Wild Rose that had the vast majority of their caucus defect to the government just a couple months before the election and, and, and a brand new leader who had just sort of been thrust into the spotlight out of nowhere um, in, in Brian Jean, who, who led the Wild Rose to a remarkable showing in official opposition status. Um, do we think that the Alberta Party has time? I'm not sure if it's time that... That's the question. Not, not for the Alberta Party. 
I don't think the Alberta party is going to, with the time that they have available to them, mount a cohesive campaign that really bolsters their brand and really gets in the eyes of Albertans as this is a potential government. Mm -hmm. I think the more likely scenario is that people start to, as they're starting to think about who they might actually vote for, they start to go through the process of, do I want to vote for the NDP again? Well, you know, there's this, 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 and this. Do I want to vote for the UCP? Well, I don't agree with Jason Kenney or, you know, so on and so forth. And the question then becomes, is the Alberta Party brand good enough to be now the third option? And really, like if, if I were running polling right now for, for the Alberta Party, what I would actually like to know is if people didn't choose the UCP or the NDP, who would they choose? Mm-hmm. Because that would really show show whether or not there is strength there. Because, I mean, with, with the margin of error on, on the Alberta Liberals and, and the Alberta Party... I wonder if that is simply that that third option that I don't want to vote for either of these. Yeah. So I'm going to pick one that I've heard about, right. and and you're kind of just seeing, um, you know, darts thrown at a, at a board. So so really at at this point, what Alberta Party needs to do, I think, is really bolster the brand, really push that yes, we we have people in all ridings now. That's that's a really dangerous move. That that's what happened when the Wild Rose had the Huntsberger and Leach situations. It was mm-hmm. a it was a rapid amassing of candidates that weren't properly vetted, mm-hmm. and they ended up causing issue for for the Wild Rose. So so it's a really dangerous place for uh, the Alberta Party to be in to to mount basically a full slate. Um, with with not a lot of time, but really, what what they need to do now is just make sure they have a clean message, uh, make sure it's cohesive, make sure everybody is staying on message, and really building the brand. Because if they build that brand as the alternative, mm-hmm. and I think I think we can safely say there there are some NDP vote or there's some people who maybe voted for NDP last time, who don't want to vote for the NDP, um, and would likely go to the Alberta Party if their brand is and their their strength is is comparable. Um, and there's probably some UCP or some PC and Wild Rose voters who don't want to vote for the UCP. So where are they going to go to next? They're not going to go to the NDP. They're not going to go to the Liberals. So Alberta Party might be mm-hmm. where they park their vote. So I think I think there's votes to be gained on both sides. Right. It's really just, you know, are they are they the obvious enough choice right. to to be that place where votes go? And then and then it really becomes a question of the election and the whole period and, and what happens because if the Alberta party can keep their nose clean and the NDP and the UCP both have both eruptions and both have issues that'll come up and let's face it the NDP and the UCP are going to be basically battling each other right and and what what Alberta party is going to be doing is trying to grab the scraps mm-hmm. as as that happens um, I think I think that's where where the possibility exists for them to to emerge right so last question on this point then and then we'll uh, we'll wrap it up um the issue that's come up now with elections alberta and with the nomination uh, capability of among others the leader of the alberta party stephen mandel i mean that's a that's an embarrassing situation for the party that's that's a little bit of egg on the face uh, does that matter to your normal alberta voter or does that just matter to political nerds like us that's a good question. I can't speak for people who are, are normal Albertans because there's nothing normal about us. Right. Uh, but I would I would argue that the moment this hits the news, um, it becomes an issue, right? So the fact that it got this far, um, regardless of whether or not it gets overturned, and of course there 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 might be reasonable argument for overturning it, but it's it's certainly uh, stuttering the start. Of, of the Alberta party and could be enough to to cause some major issues. It, it can interrupt the momentum and m- at least implant the idea in the minds of voters who haven't really heard a lot about the Alberta party or certainly haven't heard about it since Stephen Mandel won the leadership uh, early 2018 that they're maybe not ready for prime time. That And that would be their concern, I think, at this point. So, so they're, I mean, they're going to argue it first in terms of the courts and they're going to try to get that overturned. But then there's an image issue that they definitely have to get around, especially because it wasn't, it wasn't just the leader. I mean, the leader is enough to cause some issue, 
but there were five other candidates who were successful in their nominations who were listed under under elections alberta so so once is happenstance twice is a coincidence three times is a pattern yeah and and the thing is i mean we looked at this list before before we recorded and as much as there were some ucp candidates um nomination candidates uh as well as some ndp nomination candidates on those lists uh none of them were the successful candidate and they just they just didn't you know file their paperwork on time and may uh be found later to have not filed at all and and get the eight-year ban but effectively um the, the problem for them right now is that they potentially have some people who have been at the doors probably have started um, putting money away for for signage and things like that might even have some campaign materials on loan um, who now are are in this weird state right always make sure that your paperwork has been accepted before you spend money on signs especially if you've got a name like Oberhofner and you're paying by the letter all right so, our last question before we move on to final thoughts, uh, and I mentioned this last week, we are going to do this every time until you get it right. Kirk Schmidt, online voting, a great idea or the greatest idea? Well, Joey, if we can bank online, it's because there's not a trail. Okay. I have no idea what that meant, so we'll pick up on that next episode. All right, and as we wrap up this second installment of The Unelectables, Kirk, any parting words of wisdom for our prospective candidates? Absolutely. Paperwork is important. There's a reason that we have it in election laws. So file it on time. Words of wisdom from Kirk Schmidt. All right, until next time, I have been the enlightened savage, Joey Oberhofner. And I'm Kirk Schmidt. And we are The, the Unelectables. Unelectables.